Well, friends, I am amazed and encouraged that for a song that we have just introduced for the first time, uh, you have picked it up so quickly. I pray that not only the, the tune of the song would be helpful, but, but especially the truths of what we have just sung. In particular, the phrase, I cannot cause my soul to live. Friends, I hope you meditate on, on, the, on, that, on that phrase alone and recognize that our only hope for life before God, for righteousness before God, is indeed in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Therefore, one of the reasons why we we have these bulletins and we actually print out the words of the songs and we also print out the notes of the songs as much as we can is hoping that you would go home and, and hold on to some of these songs and reflect on them throughout the week, uh, perhaps even as you have your own quiet time during the week, uh, as you keep this bulletin in your Bible, that you'd open up and, and reflect on the songs we have sung on Sunday and continue to worship the Lord through that. Pray that you would, uh, you would learn the song well. I encourage you to even memorize it because it's worth our attention. Well, friends, this morning we continue our study of uh, the book of Titus. And uh, I encourage you to open by your Bible to Titus chapter 2. I'll be reading from verse 15 to chapter 3, verse 8a, the first half of verse 8. You may find this passage on page uh, number 998. If you don't have a Bible... We would love for you to grab the pew Bibles that we have in our pews. We'd love for you to take them home. We'd love for you to read them. If you don't have an ESV Bible, uh, which is the one we are using, we'd love for you to have it and use it for your own uh, edification. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning as we are continuing our journey through the book of Titus. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Amen. This is our Word from the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of His Word. Father, we are thankful and grateful that You have revealed Yourself to us. You revealed Your way of salvation. You revealed what You have done for us in Christ. And Father, You revealed for us how we should now live. 
especially those of us who have believed in Christ. Father, help us to understand your plans for our way of life as redeemed people. We pray that you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that Christ would be exalted through us. We pray that in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. For those of you who are visiting us for the first time, we're so delighted that you're with us. Our congregation uh, is currently working through the book of Titus. We are taking one passage at a time, working our way through it. At some points, we might take a slower pace. Um, we will go slower through these verses. At other times, we'll go through longer parts at a time. We have just finished working through most of chapter 2, and we are continuing the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. just want to say very, um, from the very beginning, there's so much biblical richness in these words that we have read that we will not cover everything today that what we have, from what we have read. We will just focus on verses 15 and the first two verses of, of chapter 3. Uh, Lord willing, next week we will continue to focus on verses 3 to 8, and I cannot promise you that I will finish verses 3 to 8 next week either. That's just to show you there's so much good stuff happening in this passage that we will go a little slower through it. But the overall theme of chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Titus is that godly living matters. As we have considered over the last few weeks, godly living matters because it's an outflow of sound doctrine. It's an outflow of sound doctrine, of healthy biblical teaching, where such healthy biblical teaching is lacking among uh, members uh, recognize or be aware where such, I'm sorry, where godly living is lacking among members, it could be because sound teaching is lacking. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul gives us not only lots of details and instructions about biblical or Christian living, but he also tells us the reasons. He tells us the motivation why godly living matters. Why is it that pursuing a godly living is an outflow of a correct understanding of the gospel? Jesus died to save us, not merely from hell. Jesus died to rescue us from that which leads to hell, from the lawlessness, from the ungodliness in which we are tempted to live in. Jesus, look at verse 14. This is in, in chapter 2, the passage we looked at last week in more detail. Jesus says also in, in verse 14 that he died to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's why Jesus died, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And this people would be zealous for good works. Friends, godly living matters because it reveals what Jesus saved us from and what Jesus saved us for. He can save a people that have been wretched, that have been lawless, that have been given to ungodliness. He can take a people from that and transform them and create a people for himself who are pure. When we choose to live in ungodliness, we rep misrepresent 
what Christ saved us from, and we misrepresent what Christ saved us for. As we saw last week, godly living matters also because of what the grace of God does in us. The grace of God not only brings us to God as we are in our sin, the grace of God also, after saving us, the grace of God trains us. He is our trainer, our personal trainer, so that we might live a different kind of life. A life that is no longer pursuing ungodliness and worldly passions, but trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And also, the grace of God trains us to look forward to the coming of Christ. All this is the work of the grace of God training us in our lives. After the sermon last week, all, the, all this was a review from last week, one of the members approached me and said, you know, I could have one way to summarize all that we heard today would be by saying this, the grace of God weans us off from the nature we were born with. The grace of God weans us off from the nature we were born with. And it's a wonderful summary of what we have talked about last week. Well, in light of this, that truth, the Apostle Paul goes on and, and keeps giving t- uh, Titus instructions about how to encourage the believers on the island of Crete to live their lives. Two major points as we continue our study of godly living matters. If you like taking notes, the, the first point will be fairly simple. The second point will have seven subpoints. So just want to give you a sense of where we're going. Godly living matters. Two points um, looking at this particular text that we read. Here's the first one. God's word is authoritative for our lives. God's word is authoritative or has authority over our lives. Not just over our thoughts, but over how we live. Notice, notice in verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul says to Titus, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, what are the things that Titus was supposed to declare, to exhort, and to rebuke? What are the things that he was supposed to, to do? Well, it's everything he has said up to this point. Start reading the, the whole book of, of Titus from chapter 1 to, to chapter 2, verse 15, and everything has been said so far. Titus was to declare. But it doesn't stop just at declaring. He was, he was to exhort. He was to rebuke as well. As we will continue our, our, our way through the book of Titus, we notice there's a few more instructions, a few more commands, a few more reminders and these will also fit into the, what should we declare? What should Titus declare? But it's interesting about this verse is that declaring, exhorting, and rebuking are to be happening with all authority. Paul has given Titus this command to rebuke before. Paul has given Titus a command to, to teach Paul has given the command to correct or to exhort, but now he gives an extra element. He now says, do these three actions with all authority. Now, what should we learn from this particular instruction that 
Paul gives to Titus per pertaining to his ministry to the believers. Well, here's what we can understand and, and take from this verse. The teaching ministry of the church is not simply to declare God's truth. It's also to exhort and to rebuke. Exhorting involves urging others to accept the truth and to apply the truth to their lives. Rebuking happens when the people who hear God's word fail to apply it to their lives in an appropriate way. Or when they, when they actually steer off, and, or intentionally or unintentionally, they go off the path. And that, at that time, God's word comes to us with rebuke. And Titus was to do all these three together. All these three verbs of exhorting, rebuking, declaring, are important for the life of the church. Now, some churches may be all about declaring without focusing on exhorting or rebuking, leaving that out. Others might be all about exhorting, motivating, but with little declaration and perhaps no rebuking. Reality is we need all three. We need all three of these kind of, of ways of teaching God's truth, through declaring the truth, through exhorting the truth, through rebuking the truth. But what about the part with all authority? In other words, it's not the teaching ministry of the church is not just good advice. Whether you find it helpful or useful, it's an advice you may take or leave. This is not the picture that we get in this verse. God's Word is not merely motivational advice. It carries with it God's authority. In another passage, um, in another book, Paul writes to uh, another church uh, and gives them specific instructions of how to live their lives. And it deals with, particularly with their relationships and even with their, the way they approach uh, sexuality. And Paul, at the end of that passage, says, For God has called us not to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul assumed that his teaching to this particular church, I'll give you the church at Thessalonica, uh, you can read a whole letter to find out what exactly Paul said, but in other words, Paul says, if anyone hears these words that I have just given you and disregards them, he, that person doesn't just disregard the words of men, that person disregards God. God's authority is tied to his word as revealed in the Bible. People would say, well, yeah, but men wrote that book. Yes, it's true that men wrote the book, but they wrote God's word. And God's word, which they wrote, has God's authority. And we see even in that passage that when we disregard the word of God, we don't just disregard man's word, we disregard God. Therefore, friends, when God's word is taught, that word must be taught with authority because God's authority is communicated by God's servants when they teach God's word faithfully, when they exhort God's word with faithfulness, when they rebuke God's people with faithfulness. But there's a problem. Here's a problem. In our society, especially today, we are more and more suspicious 
of authority. Especially, especially when that authority infringes upon what we consider to be our own right. Especially when that authority gets in the way and infringes on our own pleasures or on own desires. It's the very notion that we should have churches who teach God's Word authoritatively is a scary idea to some people. Let me ask you, would you have attended the church in Crete if you lived in the first century where Titus was supposed to preach and exhort and rebuke with all authority? Would you have gone to that service? And if you have gone once, would you have gone back again? Or would it be the kind of response where you'd say, gee, that was a little too close to my personal life. I am not sure I want to go back there. After all, I'm supposed to be encouraged. And uh, what I heard was not, it was very personal. It was, it's the stuff that they shouldn't, men, they shouldn't get involved in my business kind of thing. Well, friends, here's the question. Are you open to embrace the truth that God has authority over us? It's possible that the reason why we may reject or be suspicious against an authoritative teaching of God's Word is because at the heart of the matter is we might struggle with embracing the fact that God has authority over us. Now, if you wonder, why should I get or, or why should I let God to have authority over me? Well, one answer to that question is this, because God made us. Because He made us. God has made the world and everything in it. And as the Bible says, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, you may not recognize that, but whether or not you recognize it, that's how God is for us. He is the source of everything that we have in terms of our life and breath and everything that we have. Your very next breath, the very next beating of your heart happens because the Lord has not yet decreed to stop your life. He has authority over us. People may reject that truth, but it doesn't change the fact that God still has authority over us. One day, that authority will be fully visible. Friends, that day might be too late for you to change your attitude towards this God. If He has authority over us, then He has a right to speak to us authoritatively. And this is how Jesus Himself taught. I love how in, in the Gospel of Mark, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus began teaching, here's one observation the Gospel writer makes about the way Jesus taught. In Mark 1.22, And they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Friends, 
realize because God has authority over us, God's messengers must speak His truth with authority. But if we disregard the teaching about God's truth and we dislike the whole notion of teaching with authority, that might be a sign that we are disregarding God Himself. The people of Crete were in danger of, of disregarding God's messenger. We know that because Titus is told by Paul, he said, let no one disregard you. Now, this command is not so much for Titus, but for the people who are going to read this letter written to Titus. This is an indirect way in which Paul tells the people who, to, whom Paul, to whom Titus was to teach and preach, um, don't disregard the word that he's teaching you. The human tendency is that when we reject God's message, we begin to disregard those who bring us God's message. Friends, that tendency is in all of us. We have an inclination to start disregarding the people who give us advice that we no longer like. And we have the same tendency to do the same way to the people who bring us God's word, especially when God's word confronts us. And by the way, that tendency is not only towards preachers, and I'm not saying this just towards me. I am anytime another fellow believer speaks God's word to our heart in a way that, that confronts us, the sinful tendency of our heart is to disregard that person, at least for the moment. And if he keeps bringing it up, we will have a tendency to disregard that person longer term, uh, distance ourselves from that relationship, no longer meet with that person, no longer seek their advice. That's a human tendency. Friends, ask yourself, do you tend to disregard such people who speak to you God's word, whether privately or publicly? Do you tend to shut them off? Are you tempted to stop meeting with them or stop interacting with them? Friends, realize that because of our sinfulness, we must guard against the tendency to disregard those who bring us God's word with authority. The way we respond to the authoritative teaching of God's Word reveals how we feel about the authority of God over us. So as we consider and continue to work through our study of godly living matters, realize that Paul takes his pause and tells Timoth uh, Titus, teach, declare, exhort, rebuke with all authority. And let no one disregard you. A second point that we can look at as we consider what this godly living involves, the second major point is that God's Word commands us, gives us specific commands how to live in society. God's Word commands us how to live in society. We saw a bunch of commands already in chapter 2 that were very specific. If you look up in chapter 2, there were specific commands given to older men. There are specific commands given to older women. There are specific commands of what older women should teach younger women. There are specific commands given to younger men. And there are specific commands given to bond servants. Now, in chapter 3, we go to some more specifics. And these specifics are for everyone, for all Christians, and they are particularly aimed at helping us know how to live in society. Friends, Christian living is not lived just within the four walls of the church. 
the, way, the, the arena where we are called to live in godliness is not only when we are with other Christians. We are called to live in godliness when we are on a UT campus, if you're a student. We are called to live in godliness in our workplace. We are called to live in godliness in our neighborhoods. We are called to live in godliness with, with anyone we interact with. And the next seven words or seven phrases will give us specific instructions of what and how we as Christians should live godly in society. Look at verse 1. Remind them. Remind them, Paul says to Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Notice that Paul says that Titus should remind them. This means that they, they already heard these commands. This now was just a matter of reminding them. This is not new information. And the, the idea of reminding is in the present tense, which, you, which uh, in the Greek language, when, whenever a verb is given in the present tense, it has this notion of keep doing it. It's not just a one-time deal, but yes, do it now, but keep doing it. Keep reminding them of these instructions. Well, what are these instructions? Let's look at them. Seven sub-points for this, for, this for this major second point of the sermon. By the way, if we look at verse 3, when Paul will describe our own state of sinfulness in verse 3, he also uses seven descriptions. And then he goes on, in light of that sinfulness that we have been before Christ, before encountering Christ, we get a sense of the mercy and goodness of God. But before we get to that, Paul tells Titus, here's what you need to remind these Christians. Here's how they should live in society. Here's sub-point number one. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Submissive to rulers and authorities. The whole island of Crete was plagued by a spirit of insubordination. We, we don't know the details why that was so. Remember in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul said to Titus, for there are many who are insubordinate. Also in chapter 1, verse 6, the children of elders should not be open to the charge of insubordination. Now he tells Christians to adopt an attitude of submissiveness, particularly towards rulers and authorities. Now this alone is a subject that we can spend some time on. Romans 13, the passage we was read earlier in the service, gives us expanded reasons why and how Christians must submit to authority, particularly the authority of the government. Because God gives governments authority to govern over us as a society. Yes, God gives authority to governments to lead societies. And God wants those governments to lead in, in goodness, in justice. Uh, the God, the, these governments are pursuing, are supposed to pursue what is right. But what about the times when governments, authorities, require us to do things which God forbids us? If rulers and authorities start asking us to act against God um, rather than act um, in accordance to God's ways, well, if that were ever to happen, and it has happened in the past and it will happen in the future, we also know there's other principles, biblical truth, that we are to respond in such a way that we listen to God more than to men. 
But in the island of Crete, there is no indication that the government was interfering with the religious freedom uh, of worship for these Christians. There is no sense that, uh, that the Roman Empire, who, which was governing that whole area, at this particular moment, in this particular place, was creating any threat. So assuming that the government does not interfere with matters of religion or enforcing us um, to live or to uphold anti-Christian values, we do have a responsibility to submit to authorities that are over us. Now, don't think here only the President of the United States or his highest officials. Think also of state officials. Think also of local authorities. Think also of law enforcement officers. Think about your boss at work. Think about that parking ticket. Or think about that speeding ticket. Well, friends, you know, if there are many things I could confess from my own youthful upbringing where I have failed in these areas. And God has convicted me that things, my own attitudes to certain even laws of the land, if you will, uh, that I thought I, it's not a big deal. I'll just pay that ticket, right? Well, no, it is a big deal because it reflects an attitude of the heart that not, does not submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. And it's possible that even in things that we might consider less important, um, that actually that, those things are a revelation, are a reflection of, of the nature of our own heart. Not to be submissive to the people that God has put over us and the, and the authorities that God has placed over us. God calls us to ha show submission to them, to be good citizens and to relate well in submission to those who govern us. Then Paul goes on to say, be obedient. The second sub-point is that be obedient. Titus was to remind him to be obedient. Now, some commentators think that since Paul is dealing here with our relationship to governing authorities, that the command to be obedient is particularly limited to obedience to governing authorities. That might be true. But I'm not convinced that it has to be limited only to obedience to governing authorities. Um, there's a sense in which, if you look at verse 3, what's coming up, in verse 3, one of the descriptions of our state, of our nature, when we were outside of Christ, is that we were disobedient. So in light of that, now Paul calls Titus to remind these Christians to be the opposite of what they used to be when they were outside of Christ. Be obedient. Part of what it means to live a godly life is that we are willing to, to embrace obedience as something good. Being obedient is not merely an external act of compliance, but also an internal decision to act in an obedient way. It's amazing that Peter, in his first letter, writes to the believers and says to them, to pursue holiness, and here's how he describes them, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. But do you remember how he started that exhortation? As obedient children. You might be an old believer. You might be a believer for many years. You might be a an older saint, 
Um, you've, been, you've lived a lot of years. Peter would say to you, you're still to live as an obedient child. Seniority in age does not give you more rights to become less obedient in the ways of the Lord. Friends, being obedient is one of the marks of a true Christian. Being obedient to God and being obedient to the authorities that God places over us. Then the third characteristic, the third particular way of living godly in, in society, remind them to be ready for every good work. Being ready for every good work is another way in which we live out a godly life in society. Remember how in chapter 2, verse 14, we were told that the death of Christ accomplished for us two things. The death of Christ rescued us from all lawlessness. That was the first thing he accomplished for us. The second thing he accomplished for us is that the death of Christ purified for Christ a people for his own possession. And this people, this purified people, were characterized by what? By a zeal for good works. And now Paul tells Titus, remind these Christians in Crete, remind them to be ready for good, for good works, for every good work. This readiness is what false teachers and false converts lacked. You say, how do we know that? Well, go back to 116. 116 says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. False teachers and false converts are not ready for good works. But Christians, those in whom God has worked this work of purification of their hearts and lives through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christians must be ready for good works. Remind them. Remind them to be ready for good works. And if we look ahead at, verse, at chapter 3, verse 8, after, after Paul gives us a detailed description of the gospel in our lives, Paul says in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you see over and over again this framework, this reminder, the importance of good works? Some of us, dear friends, live lives that are spread so thin that we have no room to be ready for good works. We need to restructure our lives to live in such a way that we have some room and we have readiness for good works. Being ready for every good work, first and foremost, begins not with an empty schedule. It begins with a purified heart. And this readiness for good works grows when we grasp what God has done inside of us. It's out of recognition, out of gratitude for what God has done in us that we want to be a people ready, available, zealous to do good works. Friends, I praise God for, for various ways in which members of this congregation uh, open up their lives to engage in all kinds of good works. We intentionally, as a congregation, try to be minimalistic about the activities we do programmatically as a church because we want to encourage a culture where members take the initiative on their own to engage in lots of good works. Now, some of you this morning feel very timid about this. 
while, while some are very zealous and do it with great encouragement, others among us are very timid about it. But friends, if you belong into the timid category, just know this. We want to encourage one another as a congregation to grow in being more zealous for good works. Whatever shape and form that takes. The way we want to encourage that is not just by making you being more busy, because that's not the point. We want to encourage you to do that by reflecting more on the depthness of what God has done for us in Christ. As you grow in understanding the depth of the gospel, we pray and hope that you will grow in the depth of zealousness for good works. Remind them next, remind them to speak evil of no one. In other words, don't speak maliciously about others. Restrain yourself from the tendency to speak the worst about people. Now, this does not mean that if people act in wrong ways, we can ignore their evil or their, ignore their, their wrongdoing. It doesn't mean that we can act as if we pretend like it's not there. It also does not mean that we can be naive about people and about their situations. But we don't want to speak maliciously about others. We must restrain our inclination to slander others and speak ill of them. Fifthly, remind them to avoid quarreling. The other way to interpret this phrase, avoid quarreling, is to be peaceable. Remind them to be peaceable. In other words, it's not just about avoiding an argument, but it's about being a person who seeks peace, a person who pursues peaceful relationships. Do you find yourself in a circumstance where a fight of words is about to start? Restrain yourself from going forward. There are times when we have to confront one another about hard issues, but we may not be ready in our hearts to do it without falling into quarreling. You may need to tell the other person, listen, I'm not ready to talk about this issue right now, but I would love for us to address it later. That would be one way for you to say, listen, I don't want to just slide it away. I don't want to just pretend like it's not there. We will need to talk about it, but my heart is so sensitive right now that I'm afraid I'm going to start a fight of words. Let's talk about this later. Be careful in how you use your words. Be careful about the timing when you use your words. Don't use inflammatory words. Don't use the word always. You always do this. That is almost, that's always an inflammatory word. Well, almost always. Don't, don't use words that could cause damage. Um, even though you may have intended something well, the way it comes out, or at the timing when it comes out, it causes more damage than good. Friends, recognize these tendencies in us, in you. Repent of those tendencies. Commit yourself to, to being a person who pursues peace and avoids quarreling. Remind them to be gentle. Another way to interpret this instruction, this sixth subpoint of being gentle, is this. Do not insist on every right of letter of law. It means yielding, being kind, being gentle. In other words, are you a person who is able to yield to others? Does it always have to be your way? Do you always need to have the last word? Part of pursuing peace is practicing this art 
of learning how to yield to others. And if you do give up the right to have it your way, do it joyfully. Don't do it with an attitude. Don't let them know it. And don't remind them two weeks later how great of a sacrifice you've done because you yielded in that one, one instance. Do it joyfully. Do it with kindness. Lastly, remind them to show perfect courtesy to all people. The word for courtesy is also, can be also translated as humility, meekness, gentleness. You see how these things relate to one another. The root of gentleness and kindness is humility. A person who is not humble in heart will struggle, will struggle to yield, will struggle to be kind when others are not kind towards him. A person who is not humble in heart will struggle to show courtesy to all people. And we have to show this. The command is not just show courtesy to those who are kind to you or show courtesy to your friends or show courtesy to those you like. No, show courtesy also to those you disagree with. Show courtesy to those whom you dislike. What about times when, oh, friends, this convicted me. What about times when you speak to a customer service representative about something that the company did wrong and they're not willing to get it? How, what happens to your tone when you really try to show that they have messed up and you deserve a credit back? Well, it, they may have messed up. You might be in the right about your situation, but that does not give you the right to respond sinfully and in an uncontrolled anger or frustration to the person who's on the other, line of the, on the other end of the line. If anything, the Bible commands us Show perfect courtesy to all people. There are some among us this morning that after hearing these words, um, you may need to go after lunch, either call someone or go and talk to someone and apologize for some previous tone or attitude that you've had in their conversation. These are seven areas that Titus was to remind Christians of how to live with those outside, how to live with with people in society. These are seven areas, and notice most of them deal with how we relate to other people. Most of these areas are about the way we relate to others. Friends, be ready to show godly living towards other people in your relationships with other people. Again, in verse 3 to 8, we will see the biblical foundation of that, and we will not talk about it now in detail, but I just want to give you a peek preview of what's coming. In, in verse 3, Paul reminds uh, Titus to remind the believers that we ourselves, we ourselves were people described by foolishness, disobedience, being led astray, being slaves in our own passions and pleasures, um, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We ourselves were in the category of people with whom we have to deal with in society. And yet God in his kindness, he still saved us. He rescued us. And he didn't do it because we were better. He didn't do it because we behaved better than other people. 
He did it despite our disobedience. He did it because of his sheer mercy. And if God did that for us, then we, in response to God's mercy, we need to treat others with kindness because God treated us kindly. You see how living godly in society is a, is a, is a fruit of what it means to understand the gospel. And when we go in, in a deeper understanding of what Christ has done for us, we will grow in deeper application of that godly living for how we live in society. This is not about moralistic teaching. This is about godly living that is rooted out of a true understanding of the gospel. Today, friends, when we, we looked at these two major points about godly living, godly living matters because God's word is authoritative for our lives. God has the authority to tell us how to live. Second, godly, godly living matters because God commands us even specific ways how we should, um, we should live this out so we, we don't lack information, we don't lack instructions. But recognize, my dear friends and loved ones, that every one of us struggles in some area or another. There's in every one of us room to improve and to grow in more godliness in our way of life. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Over lunch, talk with someone else about what struggles you have encountered in the need of seeing God's grace train you into more godliness. Is it in regards to your attitude towards the authority of God's word over your life? Is it in any of the specific seven instructions that, that we saw in verses 1 and 2? Is it in other areas of godly living? Use your lunch today. Encourage one another. Speak to one another about how the Lord is teaching you and growing you and challenging you and stretching you to live a godly life. Because it matters. It matters because through it, we display what Christ saved us from, and we display what Christ saved us for. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that your word is clear. And we're grateful that you do not leave us by ourselves in this attempt to hear your word, but you give us your Holy Spirit, and you give us your grace that trains us to live a life of godliness. Father, help us to receive your word as an authoritative word. And help us, O oh Lord, to lo learn and know how to live our lives in a godly way to those who are outside the faith, in society. Help us, O oh Lord, to, re to live lives that reflect your truth and give us a humility to recognize the areas of growth that we still have. Give us the humility to recognize that we need one another. We need the encouragement of one another. We need the support and prayer of one another. Help us, O oh Lord, as a congregation, to be a people that reflect the power of the gospel to rescue us from sin. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.